come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 65 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, this is going to be my, you know, Spotlighting Women Directors number three. And for this one is going to be my second feature review of Hard Labor, which has a co-director that is a woman over there. And then on top of that, I also decided to pair it up with another film from South America because that is where Hard Labor is from. I believe it's from Brazil. I could be wrong on that, but I do, you know, kind of give credit and everything like that to where it's from as well as to that director that I'm referring to in that featured review for it. But the first one here is going to be a 2021 release of a movie called La Casa, which comes from Chile. So that is kind of why I'm pairing these up as the two double feature here. And then for mini-reviews, it's been a busy week for me. I have had a lot of time to kind of sneak some movies in, and it'll be mini-reviews of Dead Birds, Paranormal Activity 3, The Wolfman from 1941, which is part of my Odyssey Through the Ones, and then I have Norai the Curse, Wolf Creek, House of Wax, The Little Things is a very brief review, and I'll get into that once you know that pops up there. And then the last one I watched for this week is Land of the Dead. So that's all I kind of really wanted to get you caught up with here. I'll go over, you know, in the outro of what the next episode will entail. So before I get you over to those mini reviews, I'm going to kick you over to a musical break. And as always, I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
and for my first mini review of this week is going to be Dead Birds from 2004. This is directed by Alex Turner and it is written by Simon Barrett. This stars Henry Thomas, Patrick Fugit, and Nikki Acox. This is a horror thriller western film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a group of Confederate soldiers hole up in an abandoned plantation after robbing a bank and find themselves at the mercy of supernatural forces. Now this is a movie that I'll be honest I had never heard about until the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. This movie has a good cast and I was shocked that when I saw who was all in it. Because aside from you know what I heard on the episode I came in pretty blind and intrigued about where this would go. And then to kind of just delve into that a little more, we have, you know, Henry Thomas, Nikki Acox, uh, Fugit, and then we also have Isaiah Washington. There's Michael Shannon and Mark Boone Jr. all in this movie as well. But this movie doesn't have the deepest story, but it is doing some really good things. It is interesting to see Simon Barrett's name as the writer here, since I'm a fan of more of his later films. But I like that this is a period piece taking place in 1862 in the South uh, during the Civil War. And I think part of that is so they don't have to necessarily worry about technology. But then also making it in the South is that we have Confederate soldiers is an interesting move. And it also limits, you know, the weapons of the time that they have as well. Seeing the creatures that they kill, I can see them being spooked, but not necessarily terrified as we get here in the movie. Now, the world would have a lot of mysteries back then. And this house is in the middle of nowhere. And it's also going to be in, I think, well, it's in Alabama. So I still think that there's kind of like a bayou or just... Out in the middle of nowhere, there could be some weird things that we might not necessarily know about. And then, this movie also, you know, being in the South, has some built-in racism of the characters of Clyde and even Joseph when it comes to the character of Todd as well. Now, Clyde being Shannon, and then Mark Boone Jr. being Joseph, where Todd is Isaiah Washington. Another thing, you know, with it being set in the South, is that I'm assuming that, you know, as I was saying, we're not too far from New Orleans. There is some stuff that we get here with rituals, and the entities that we're seeing are later called demons of a sort. I'm a bit of a sucker for when it comes to, you know, some of these things being revealed there. This plantation also had slaves, and that shouldn't come as a shock. So I thought it was pretty cool that they're doing things with voodoo that could come into play here as well. The movie never explicitly comes out and to say the religion that the rituals are coming from, but I'm also assuming that there's probably going to be some of the stuff to do with, you know, voodoo and things of that nature. I think they don't necessarily explain it or force-feed it to us, but we get enough of that stuff there. Now, the effects... We get some of that with the rituals. We only get flashes that was done, you know, to cause some of the horrors and the curse that is on the house. I will give credit to the cinematography for that. The practical effects that we get also look good. That would include some of the blood and there's even a flayed person at one point. This movie does rely quite a bit on CGI though. That does hurt the movie for me as we get more and more of it as it goes on. And some of it's fine, but some of it just took me out of the movie because it's not very good and it doesn't necessarily hold up. And then I'll go next to the acting here. I thought that Thomas was solid as our lead. He seems like a good guy, despite being a thief. It might have also worked better if he was actually from the North and stealing the gold from the Confederates, where I would, you know, be more on board with him. Not having it, you know, be that way doesn't necessarily bother me, though. And I understand why is it story purposes to have him from the South. Fugit was solid as well as his younger brother. What I like is that a majority of the time on screen... We see him progressively getting worse and worse as he's been shot and that wound is getting infected. 
he was solid in showing that you know deterioration of his character now acox is an interesting actress here i've seen her in a couple of movies and neither of them are great and they're both sequels and she was in jeepers creepers 2 and she was also in joyride 2 i find her attractive in a interesting way but she's pretty wooden to be honest also her character motivations during the climax kind of confused me a bit I thought Shannon, Boone, and Washington were all solid in their limited roles. We also get Muse Watson here. I did like him as the father of this family that was living in this home. I thought the rest of the cast does round this out for what was needed. So this isn't a great movie. It is an interesting take on the creature feature, and it does a bit of different things, you know, being in the time period that it's set. I was on board there and thought the acting goes along with that pretty well. The movie doesn't have the most complex story and the CGI doesn't necessarily work, but the practical effects that we do get does, and the soundtrack, I thought, does help to make some things a bit creepier when needed. I find this to be an above-average movie. It's lacking just a little bit for me to go any higher, though, as it isn't groundbreaking, but it is an enjoyable one, I would say. So my rating here for Dead Birds, I came in with a 6 out of 10. And up next, I have Paranormal Activity 3. This is co-directed between Henry Joost and Ariel Shulman. This is written by Christopher Landon, and they also credit Oren Pelly for the original film. This stars Chloe Savagari, Jessica Tyler Brown, and Christopher Nicholas Smith. This is a horror mystery film that is found footage, and it comes from the United States, where it is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, in 1988, young sisters Katie and Christy befriend an invisible entity who resides in their home. Now, this is only the second time that I've seen this one. It came out while I was working at Family Video. I took this home as a pre-street and watched it with my sister. I'll be honest, I really didn't care for it that first time. Jamie recommended wanting to see this since she had never seen this one, or at least to her knowledge hadn't, and I'd only seen it that once. Aside from that, I knew that this was a prequel to the previous film in the series, and I do want to say it's a little bit misleading is that Katie really doesn't like the entity where Christy is the one that has befriended it. So now while reading through my original review as I was updating it, I can see my gripes. I don't actually dislike this one as much as I did the first time. And I mean, I gave it a six that first time around. What I think here is that I've seen Paranormal Activity 4 as well as the marked ones. So rewatching the first and second movie here recently and then seeing those a couple times, before seeing this one really kind of changes my thoughts here on this prequel. The first thing I really wanted to comment on is the found footage aspect that this series is known for. I do have some issues with how much the stepfather or like at least the boyfriend of the mother of Dennis is filming. I believe that he would. His job is legitimately as a videographer. My issue though is that Julie isn't on board with it but does seem to allow it. She gets irate with him for as things go on but she never follows through with her problems with him filming everything. Also, I don't know if the technology really works to be filming as much as they do. Being that this is 1988, the footage isn't as grainy as I would like, and none of this actually ruins a film, but it does kind of affect, you know, some of the realism that I have with it. With that out of the way, I want to delve more into the story a bit. I do like the idea of this prequel. We're seeing the beginnings of Toby with these sisters. The filmmakers did a great job with continuity here. We get to see the pictures being that will come back, you know, in both Paranormal Activity movies, you know, the ones that have a little bit of burn on them. We get to get to see them being taken. This one also explains why the entity is following them. And if you're going to continue on with the series, we really need to keep making it bigger. And this one does do that. One of my original gripes was that I didn't think it worked. I will admit here, I was wrong. I really like the reveal and it's all creepy overall as we kind of get that stuff near the end. As for the acting here, 
I'm glad the present footage that we get to start this movie off brings back Katie Featherston, Sprague Graydon, and Brian Boland. We don't really get a lot of them, but it's really more of a cameo to kind of set the stage. I'm a fan, though, that we bring back the same actors when needed. I do think that Lauren Bittner, I really like as this young mother of two daughters. She looks like she could be from the era, and she is quite attractive, and I thought her performance worked. My only issue is that she tells Dennis to stop filming and never follows up with it. She loves him, but my problem here is that he's not the father. She is putting her children in danger, at least she thinks she is, for what he's doing. I know there are women all the time that'll put their children in bad spots, so I can see that it does happen. I just wanted her to be uh, do a bit more there. Smith is good, though, as his driving force for this footage. I believe he would film a lot of what he does. Savgary and Brown, I think, are both good as these two children. Neither are great, but as children, I don't expect a whole lot from them, and I feel like their fear is believable. Aside from that, I thought Hallie Foote as Grandma Lois really helps to drive the story along with giving us, you know, backstory and the rest of the cast, you know, rounds off for what was needed. The last thing I'll go over here would be the effects. This one, much like other films in the series, we don't get a lot of these in, the, in that department. We do get some people lifted off the ground or at least pulled fast away from the screen, and that's done with CGI, I believe. We don't get a lot of that, though, so I'm kind of fine for the most part. This one does go farther than the previous two, and I would say some of the things that we get, and that really kind of, you need to ramp it up here. It needs to as a sequel, as I was saying, and where we keep pushing the boundaries. Really, my only issue here is that I've laid out with, with how good the footage looks and not necessarily fit in the era that it's supposed to be filmed during. So in conclusion, I have come down harder on this movie than I should have that first viewing. This one does some interesting things, you know, being a prequel with explaining some of the backstory for the movies that we've gotten. It also makes sense to where the series goes from here and what gets introduced. I think that the acting works for the realism needed for a found footage movie, and most of the effects that we get here are solid. I do have some slight issues with the cinematography and some of the believability with some of the filming. The soundtrack is diegetic, and I can appreciate, you know, for helping with the realism there, and the sound design works for building the scares. This viewing has brought up my thoughts, and now I can see that this is a good movie. If you don't like the series, you probably won't like this one, but if you like found footage, I think this is an interesting series, and it's just, you know, continuing on the story that we've gotten previously in this movie here. So my rating for Paranormal Activity 3 after this viewing is an 8 out of 10. And then for my Odyssey Through the Ones film, I have The Wolfman from 1941. This is directed by George Wagner. This is written by Kurt Sadamak. This stars Claude Rains, Warren William, and Lon Chaney Jr. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being Larry Talbot returns to his father's castle in Wales and meets a beautiful woman. One fateful night, Talbot escorts her to the local carnival where they meet a mysterious gypsy fortune teller. Now, this is a film that, much like the others in the Universal Classics, I watched after college. I didn't grow up with these. Much like the others then, I wasn't the biggest fan as I felt the stories were just lacking a bit. This one, I did have a second viewing at the Gateway Film Center on 35mm. I did have much more appreciation for it there and then gave it a third viewing now here as part for this podcast. So this time around, I wanted to touch on that this film, you know, kind of really started the werewolf lore that we know about today. Originally, there was a man who could become a wolf and whenever he wanted to. This film brings up that silver is the only way to kill them and they don't seem to associate with the full moon as of yet which i do find to be interesting i do enjoy the concept of the werewolves the legend seems to be that people didn't believe that man could commit such violent murders so i had so it had to be someone who was part beast 
I find this to be extremely interesting, and actually I've watched a show where they think origination of this creature is. Going along with this, there's this interesting concept put forth by Sir John Talbot that lycanthropy is actually just a duality of man akin to something like we would get with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I do kind of wish that this movie would have went with what the screenwriter of Sodomac's original idea was to never actually show the Wolfman as a monster so that it could be, you know, more ambiguous. They wanted to capitalize, though, on the fact that they were doing, you know, monster movies. Now, where I'll go next is the idea of this creature. It is confusing that Bella, who is portrayed by Bella Lugosi, actually becomes a wolf where Larry becomes the Wolfman. I think that this is an error in the film. I'm assuming it is partially budgetary that they probably didn't have enough makeup or the costume to make you know both of them so they just did it with larry it just doesn't seem to follow its own rules which i do have an issue with and the last thing i really wanted to go into for the story is just how creepy larry is i know that this was made in 1940s larry comes on way too strong with gwen and won't take no for an answer the problem that i had here is that we still get men including myself in my youth where this is normalized where you kind of just you know keep being persistent and then eventually they'll kind of fall for it it doesn't help that he gets rewarded that Gwen does fall for him. This is problematic for me, though. This is really only somewhat of a subplot as well, which hurts the movie that it only runs 70 minutes. I think they could have been something else here, especially, you know, trying to figure out and explore some of the options where we have John as a scientist, and I mean, Larry is seems to be one as well. But that's I want to get back to some of the positives here. I thought the acting was good across the board. I'm a big Lon Chaney Jr. fan, and I think he does well in this role. When we get to the effects as the Wolfman, he looks great. My only issue here is how he's written with dealing with Gwen. I can't hold it against him, though, due to the time that it came out. Claude Rains was solid as his father. We definitely exude someone in a position of power who has duties. It is funny for how small he is compared to the much larger Chaney, though. I like Lugosi in his smaller and supporting role. Aosapekaskaya? is great as well. I wasn't the biggest fan of Ankers though, who plays Gwen. Part of it is how her character was written. I just don't like that she's rewarding Larry for his behavior, but this isn't necessarily the actress's fault, but I do feel her acting is a bit flat. The rest of the cast does round this out as well. And the last thing to go over would be the effects themselves, which were good in my opinion. I loved what they did with the werewolf transformation, even though we only see it with the legs, you know, and then we actually don't see his face until like he's in full makeup. It is time-lapse, which I can appreciate that they at least did some sort of transformation. I've said that I thought Chaney looked good as the Wolfman. That is about the extent of the film, though, in regards to effects. I thought the editing was good as it does build tension to the climax. It just does end pretty abruptly after that. In conclusion, though, this is still one of my top five favorites of the era despite my issues. I like the concept of the werewolf and the commentary about it. As Rain states in the film, there is good and evil in the human soul, and it is all about how the person decides to do with it. I do feel that there are some issues with the story, but not enough to ruin it. This film has significance with the werewolf lore in films. The acting was good in my opinion, and there weren't a lot in the way of effects, but they were well done for what we do get. The editing was solid, the score didn't really stand out or hurt the film. Keep in mind this came out in 1941, so it is black and white. If that's an issue, I would avoid this. If not, I feel that this is a universal classic and worth a viewing. So my rating here for The Wolfman from 1941 is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I also watched Norai the Curse from 2005. This is directed by Koji Shirashi. And I know there's also two uncredited writers, so I'm not going to go ahead and include them here. But I know he is one of them. And then this stars Jin Murakai, Ryo Kano, and Tomono Kuga. This is a horror mystery thriller that is from Japan. 
that is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a documentary filmmaker explores seemingly unrelated paranormal incidents connected by the legend of an ancient demon called the Kagabataba. So this is another movie that I'd never heard of until I got into listening to horror movie podcast. It would pop up periodically, especially since it's interesting that the Japanese found footage film that was hard to find for a while. It appears on the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s that I'm still working through that list. So thanks to Shudder, I was able to see this movie. Now, I do want to give credit here to the director of Shirarashi, who was also uncredited, as I said, to help write this along with Nayuko... Yoko Ta. This movie seemed like a standard Japanese ghost story that is told in found footage. That's not necessarily the case though because we have an intricate story here that unfolds and it really sucked me in. To delve a bit more into this, I've seen quite a few ghost stories from Asian countries. They intrigue me for the fact that many of the people are there are more spiritual. Some follow more traditional religions but there are quite a few that do not. It seems to be more accepted in their culture where there could be ghosts, demons, and the supernatural of the like. I could be wrong there, but I do want to point out that there are skeptics that we get in this movie. There are even times where the main character of Kobayashi himself doesn't necessarily buy some of the things. We also get to see that when someone goes to interview the character of Mitsuo, that they are being mocked. He is wearing tinfoil the whole movie, so he's comical. What makes it like kind of get me sucked in is that the more we see him the more that we're convinced about his beliefs. I can see how people would get suckered in for sure, especially if somebody is so deep into their convictions. Now, bringing the story elements back with this movie, I love how this movie unfolds. Going found footage makes us feel like we're part of the investigation process. Things are being pulled from like variety television shows that air in Japan, and they help us to give backstory before they fit into this puzzle. This mystery piece together is like a puzzle as well. When Kobayashi learns something, he sees that it's connected to other things that he's learned about or has heard. Then it leads deeper into everything else. This is what helps this movie for me as we get the sense of foreboding and dread that just keeps building and building to the climax. It didn't give me the payoff that I necessarily wanted, but it left me uncomfortable for sure. Now, I'm not sure if this would have worked as well if not for the acting. Mirakai, we follow pretty much this whole movie and I like him as our lead. We learn early that he's inquisitive, so we never have to worry about him giving up until he finds the truth. I think he fits this role perfectly. Kano is solid in this role as his child psychic. Kuga is creepy when we get to see her as she is this character of Junko Ishii. Matsumoto I thought was cute and really works well. What is interesting is that what is happening scares her, but the stakes raise her fear pushes her to continue to help Kobayashi solve what is happening. And I also think it's interesting that she is credited as her own real name here of Mirakai Matsumoto. I also really like Satori Jitsunashi. As I've already said that he's weird and his outfits really help to establish this as he plays Mitsuo. What is interesting though is that the more we see him, the less and less crazy he seems. And we can see the connections to things that he says and what Kobayashi finds. It is interesting that a lot of the cast is credited as themselves, so they're legit just using their own names, and that helps with building the realism on top of that. Now, what I really want to go to next would be the elephant in the room when it comes to discussing this movie. There is some CGI that is used here that doesn't look great. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, though. It really only comes near the end of the movie, so I'm fine there. 
there are just a few times when someone is filming something as well but there are one or two times where it took me out of the movie so i don't buy that person would be filming with kobayashi not being there or just wouldn't let him film certain things at times i just feel like that kind of takes away some of the realism not a huge issue though as is i do believe that kobayashi and his cameraman would be filming most everything that we get here so in conclusion, I'm glad that I finally saw this movie and can tick it off my list. It is really an interesting found footage movie that is presented as a documentary format. What worked for me, and I love how intricate the story is and how it all fits together. The acting was solid across the board and helping with that realism, and I like the sound design that helps there as well. If I didn't have any issues, I do think that some people wouldn't be filming and some of the CGI doesn't necessarily work. This does also run about two hours long. I bring that up as I didn't notice it this first time around as I felt dread building to the climax. Not sure that this would necessarily work after a second viewing as well though. For me after this viewing, I found this to be a good movie and I thoroughly enjoyed it to be honest. So my rating here for Norai the Curse is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for my next review is going to be Wolf Creek from 2005. This is written and directed by Greg McLean. This stars Nathan Phillips, Cassandra McGrath, Kesty Morassi, as well as John Jarrett. This is a crime horror thriller that is from Australia that is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, and synopsis being three backpackers stranded in the Australian outback are plunged inside a hellish nightmare of insufferable torture by a sadistic, psychopathic local. Now, this is a movie that I'm pretty sure that I saw it when it hit the movie channels, and I feel like I was home visiting from college at my parents' house when I caught it. It affected me pretty good, but I never have come back to revisit it. Not that I didn't like it, it's just for whatever reason I would watch other things and just never kind of got back to it. So I do have to thank Duncan, as this was part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s, so I finally gave it a rewatch as I'm you know still trying to work through everything there. Now what I really kind of want to go over here is that after the second viewing, I can say that I actually didn't remember a whole lot. I knew that the main villain here of Mick was a real jerk and that Jarrett did an excellent job with that portrayal. Aside from that, I knew that there was a basic premise and that was really about it. What really struck me here is that this movie does just have a basic premise that is effective. I do like how Australian this movie feels for an outsider while also something I could connect with as an American. Going along with this, we really get to see the concept of you know being an outsider in the movie itself. This first happens when our trio of Liz, Christy, and Ben all stop off to get gas. There's a guy inside who's a local by the name of Baza, and he has a crew that are a bunch of jerks with him. They're saying inappropriate things that make Liz and Christy uncomfortable. Now, this is something that I'm assuming happens everywhere. I don't like it, but until we fix the issue at the start with upbringing, this is where we are. As someone who isn't the biggest guy, I could also connect with Ben here. He wants to stand up to Baza, but that guy is much bigger than Ben is and would probably get rocked in that fight. Getting back to the point though, Baza and his guys are doing it because they can. This also happens with Mick. Ben mocks him a couple of times to his face and he does take exception to it, but now we know that Mick is a monster, but if he wasn't, it was kind of rude what Ben says to him. Mick does take it with good humor though and doesn't really say anything at that point. The character of Mick is where I want to go to next though. We learn from the story he gives that he used to be a hunter that worked on a large farm here in the outback. They no longer needed him and he's you know set up shop in this abandoned mining camp and this is also something you could see in the american west here i would bet that the isolation didn't help his psyche as he descended into madness 
this isn't that much different from a killer that would live in like the mountains or the hills here in the United States. I did question some of the motives for what he does when he catches them. They seem like they could escape pretty easy, and I would bet that part of this is that Mick does enjoy hunting them, as you know, he was a hunter on that farm. I do have some slight issues with that, and I get that it also kind of makes the movie more exciting to help the characters get away, but I don't necessarily know if he really wants to kill these people that he would allow that. But, I mean, he is also somewhat just stealing items from these people and just kind of tying up loose ends. Now, speaking of the characters, I want to go to the acting next. I've already said that Jared is great in this role. He plays as a villain so amazing, and it's become to the point where this character, where anytime that I see him in other things, it's hard for me to separate the two. I've seen him not too long ago as a good character in a movie, and it was hard for me, to, as I said, to separate because he does so well as his Mick character. I like that McGrath is the stronger of the two women. She likes Ben, but I also feel like she is more independent despite that. What happens here in this movie is really heartbreaking with her, and I think I connected with her so well is why it was for me. Morassi is solid in support of her. I like the interesting way that we get the character of Ben, so I will give you know credit to Phillips here as well. You'd also think that he would be more macho, but that really isn't the case here. There's almost a lack of confidence that we normally don't get here in these type of movies with this male character. Then next I want to go to the effects. This movie I would say is somewhat of a slasher film, but not necessarily a traditional one in that sense. It has a taste of road horror in there as well. This movie though isn't as brutal as I remember it. We really don't get anything until about 45 minutes into the movie when we meet Mick, so we do have that slow buildup that slashers tend to have. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but what we do get look good. They hide things with cinematography, so I think that also helps to preserve that realism. Aside from that, there's this dirty feel to everything with the characters camping and then finally getting to the camp where Mick stays. That gritty feel is something I can appreciate, and it's almost a throwback to exploitation films as well. So in conclusion here, this movie doesn't have the most complex story, but it's still interesting. The isolation of being in the middle of the outback is terrifying. Having this being based on what they think to be a real-life killer that was kind of roaming the area is solid. I think that Jared's portrayal as Mick was really great, while the other three trying to escape him are solid. It isn't as brutal as I remember. The effects that we get, I, I think, still look good. The soundtrack is solid for what was needed, and the movie really just has a great premise. I do think that the ending is a little bit... I don't necessarily like where it kind of takes things, but it doesn't also ruin anything for me. I would still say this is a good movie overall. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to everyone because it could be a bit brutal for those not prepared, but if you like foreign slasherist type films or movies from Australia, I would definitely give this one a viewing. So my rating here for the original Wolf Creek movie is an 8 out of 10. Also this week, I got to watch House of Wax from 2005. This is directed by Jaume Colette Serra. This comes from a story from Charles Belden and then a screenplay from Chad Hayes and Carrie W. Hayes. This stars Chad Michael Murray, Paris Hilton, and Alicia Cuthbert. This is a horror thriller that is a co-production of Australia and the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a group of teens are unwittingly stranded near a strange wax museum and soon must fight to survive and keep from becoming the next exhibit now, this is a movie that I actually went to see in the theaters when it came out. I'll be honest, I don't think I even knew this was a remake at the time. What is even funnier here is that I watched this and then sought out the original two that the name of the movie is based off. Now, this is really just a remake and name of them, 
And I'll get into what the remake here is shortly, but I'm assuming most of you horror fans already kind of know about what that is. I did like this the first time I saw it, and I picked this up on DVD when I was in college, but I haven't seen it since that second viewing. Now, this would be my third here, and I think this still holds up. As I said previously, this is a remake in name only of Mystery of the Wax Museum or House of Wax. It really is more of a remake of Taurus Trap. I'm not the first to point this out, of course, but what I really wanted to bring that up here, though, to make sure that I kind of establish that. The setting of a wax museum is an interesting one, especially since this whole house is actually made out of wax, including not only the you know people inside of it, but most everything else, like the walls and everything along those lines, the floor, everything. There's just some items in the house that are just real items that had to be you know purchased and put there. I don't know if this would actually work or not, especially if this is taking place in the southern United States. But it does make for a great set piece for the climax. This is also a solid little slasher film that goes along with it. I don't think the story necessarily stands out, but and there's not really any kind of big reveals with it, but I think it's solid enough. Now, since we don't have the complex story, I'll move next to the acting. I'm a big fan of Cuthbert. I think that she does a solid job here as our lead. She's attractive, and she goes through a lot of punishment on top of that as our final girl. As for her twin in the movie, I don't love his attempt at the bad boy. He doesn't really work as things progress. What I will say is that the depth of his character was surprising. Nick is hiding something that makes him a better person in my book. Van Holt, who plays Bo, I thought he did a fine job. There's just something about him that I don't trust from the beginning as he seems too nice. He does take a lot of punishment as well. This will bring me next to Hilton. I know a lot of people give this movie grief for having her in it, but she's actually good here. I believe her character, and she's also quite attractive. We also have Jared Padalecki, and I think he's solid along with John Abrams and the rest of the cast. The only character I really don't care for is that of Robert Ricard. He isn't necessarily his performance. I just think that his character is written to be a bad boyfriend, and he does well in showing that. Now, I will take this next to the effects. I really only remembered a few of what happened, you know, to like Wade and then to Carly. And this movie is really actually a pretty bloody slasher. It makes sense to why all these characters come along, as it also helps with the body count. We get some pretty brutal deaths here, while also having some done off screen. I was pleasantly surprised, and most everything was done practical from what I could tell. Now, there is some CGI with the climax, but I think that's hidden pretty well in my opinion. So in conclusion here, I think this movie got a bad rap back in the day. From everything that I'm you know, starting to hear now, though, horror fans on the whole actually seem to be coming around to it and enjoying this. Is it great? No, but I think that it's a fun slasher with a solid premise, setting, kills, and a group of characters that work well. I also think the soundtrack kind of fits for what they needed as well. This is really one that, you know, you can't come in expecting too much and just kind of enjoy it. For me here, I would say this is an above average movie, just kind of falls short of being good, so my rating of House of Wax from 2005 is a 7 out of 10. And the next movie I'm going to kind of go over here just very briefly, because it's not necessarily a horror movie, but I do think it has some darker elements, and that is The Little Things. This is here from 2021. This is written and directed by John Lee Hancock. This stars Denzel Washington, Remy Malek, and Jared Leto. This is a crime drama thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being two cops track down a serial killer. You know, very short and sweet there. So what I really kind of wanted to go over here just ever so briefly would be that I wasn't sure if this was going to be horror. It's not, but it doesn't take away anything from here, though. We have an older Denzel Washington playing a character by the name of Joe Deke Deacon. 
He's a sheriff's deputy in a smaller area outside of L.A. It appears that he was a great homicide detective, but something happened and he left it behind. There is currently a serial killer that is using the highway to kill as well as to dump his victims. In charge of this case is Jim Baxter, portrayed by Remy Malik. Now, he's a hotshot and pretty much took over for Deke. Now, when Deke returns to collect some evidence from L.A., he gets caught up with helping in this case as he notices similarities to a case he was working previously. He helps out Jim, and this leads them to Elbert Sparma, which is portrayed by Leto. Now, the acting here is superb. Washington and Malik are great, but Jared Leto really just steals the show for me. This is really a gritty movie looking at detective work and the lengths that cops will go. It is an interesting watch for this day and age, especially where we have a lot of, you know, cops doing things that are less savory. And it's also set in 1990, which adds another layer there as well. But I thought this was a really good movie and worth a watch for sure. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on that movie. And that is for The Little Things. And then from there, I'm going to go next to Land of the Dead. This is 2005 is when it came out. This is written and directed by George A. Romero. This stars John Leguizamo, Asia Argento, and Simon Baker. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is a co-production between... United States, Canada, and France. This is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being the living dead have taken over the world and the last humans lived in a wall city to protect themselves as they come to grips with the situation. Now this is one that I was pretty excited when I heard that it was coming to theaters. This would have been my senior year of high school. My father introduced me and my sister to the trilogy at that time, so this would have been the first one that came to the theaters in my life now, we went as a family, and I really liked it. And I've seen it quite a few times over the years, you know, throughout that and everything. So I want to start off with here is that Romero probably is my favorite director of all time. Dawn of the Dead is my favorite horror movie, and I mean, Day of the Dead is right there in my top five as well. What is really impactful from this series is just how well he constructs the stories, where you can enjoy what he's doing while also reading subtext underneath it. I think that is probably, this one here is the most in-your-face of the four, but I still think it's worthy with the other three. Now we're really looking at a capitalist society here and what is going on in the United States at the time of writing this really kind of fits with the commentary here. Kaufman, who is Dennis Hopper, along with his group of the ruling class, they all have the money and the power while we have the people in the slums below. There's this character of Mulligan who is portrayed by Bruce McPhee is interesting because he's trying to rally the people since they outnumber the rich. The problem is that these people are placated due to vices, which is much like we see today. Too many people are comfortable and don't want to get their hands dirty. It then becomes interesting here, though, are the zombies that attack the city. From the beginning, Romero has introduced that zombie, zombies are primitive, but they can learn. It is brought up in Dawn and Day. The next logical step is what we have here. The character of Big Daddy, who's portrayed by Eugene Clark, really pushes them forward. And it's interesting with seeing them as they are attacking Fiddler's Green, which is nothing more than Pittsburgh, but they're taking on the name of the high-rise building where the rich live. Now, the revolution that Mulligan wants to have happen when the zombies attack, on top of that, everyone who dies joins them, and it isn't necessarily his vision, but it works still to kind of get what they want for these changes. Now, the last thing here I want to delve into would be the character of Cholo, who is portrayed by Leguizamo. He's mad because he's spurned to, you know, want to move into this high-rise, which makes sense. What confuses me, though, is that his mindset is, is stuck in the old world. He wants Kaufman to pay him a monetary ransom. That won't help him outside of Fiddler's Green. I think is really just showing that how blinded by rage he is and not really thinking that it only has value if someone believes that money has it. Destroying Fiddler's Green makes it useless. 
Now, moving away from the story and the commentary, I'll go next to the acting. I'll be honest here, is I don't really care for Baker here as our lead. And that's Simon Baker. He's stoic, which is fine. There's just something about him that I think there's so many good performances around him, he kind of gets lost. Leguizamo is one of them. I think he does a solid job as Cholo, and you can feel his rage. Hopper is good as this true villain of the movie. I like the Argento's uh, appearance here. I thought her performance was solid. I think Joy is also really good. Clark as Big Daddy is fine. I just don't necessarily think he's great either. And the rest of the cast we get really does round this out for what was needed with cameos from Phil Fadacaro, Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright, Greg Nicotero, and even Tom Savini as zombies. Really, the last thing I want to delve into would be the effects, which can be hit or miss for me. I think that the zombies and their look is really good. The ending sequence of Mayhem for the climax, I think, really works well with what is done practically. And I'm not surprised, though, to see K&B's name in the credits. Nicotero is from the school of Savini, and of course, you know, he's the N in K&B. What I really have an issue with is the CGI. They rely on it a lot, and most of it doesn't really hold up. It is a shame, but I get why it's used. Romero was given probably the biggest budget he ever got to work with for any of these movies in the series. And, you know, also with Universal here, I'm just not the biggest fan. I feel like there's probably some studio interference here. So in conclusion, this is the weakest of the four in the Dead series from Romero at this time. Now, the ones that come after it kind of keep falling off even more. I still think this one has good social commentary, and it creates a world that sucks me in. I think that the acting is pretty solid across the board, the practical effects are on point, the cinematography is well done, the soundtrack fits for what is needed. If they didn't go with as much CGI as they did, I think this would have worked better for me. I still think this is a good movie. I don't think this will ever go higher than the rating I have for it now, but I still enjoy it for what it is. I'd recommend this to fans of the series, or if you enjoy zombie movies, this one is still one of the better ones in my opinion, so my rating for Land of the Dead is an 8 out of 10. That's all I have for mini reviews for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. La antigua casona que tiene asustados a los vecinos desde hace años. Se dice que el lugar está maldito a partir de un crimen y de un hecho siniestro acontecido a comienzos de este siglo, cuando este lugar se mandó a construir. La casona fue construida alrededor de 1908. Al poco tiempo, el propietario se muda junto a su mujer aseguran que las dependencias del que hoy es un centro cultural, los fantasmas del dueño de casa y su cónyuge aún se hacen presentes. Vamos a visitar este lugar, vamos a evaluarlo energéticamente y vamos a ver si todos estos mitos y estas historias tienen algo de real. Yo soy un cierto sentimiento, tomaba contacto con energías negativas a través de una bruja, una hechicera.
for my first feature review on this episode is going to be my 2021 film of La Casa. Now, this was technically made in 2019, and I think it got a little bit of a festival run around that time as well, but it's getting its full release here this year. This is written and directed by Jorge Olguin. This stars Carol Campos, Camila Carano, and Gabriel Canas, along with last names that appear are actually Carlos Cortez and Felipe Silva Rodriguez. This is a horror film that is from Chile. This is sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Inspired by real events, responding to an urgent call for help, a police officer becomes trapped by the evil spirits of a cursed house. Now, this is a movie that I've only heard about thanks to Mark Nato and his list of movies that were being released in January 2021. Now, I was trying to figure out a movie to pair up with the older one that'll be my second featured review on here, and that is Hard Labor. So I decided to go with this one since this one's also from South America, seeing that it was from Chile, and I thought that was good enough for a double feature here. Aside from that, I came into this one pretty blind and wasn't sure if they would pair up. They don't necessarily, but I think with some of my mini reviews that you've already heard, I think it kind of fits on this episode still. And then before I kind of jump into my recap of the movie and then, you know, my thoughts, our director of Olguin has six directing credits so far, and all of them are horror movies. His first was Angel Negro from 2000, followed by Eternal Blood. And then I've heard of his next one was Descendants, which I believe was a zombie movie. Then he did Caleche, The Call of the Sea, and Whispers of the Forest. I have not seen any of these, so the only one I have seen is La Casa now. As a writer, though, he has five credits, as it looks like he's written every movie that he has directed aside from Colche. And then as for our cast, Campos has only been in one movie, and this is it. Carano has been in two movies, and the only one I've seen is this one, and then she was also in a thriller called Snuff Tapes. And then Canis has been in three as an actor, so, you know, one, two, three there. With this being the only one that I've seen and the only one that is actually in the realm of horror. So then to get into this movie here, we start off with getting reports about this haunted house. Coupling with that, we learn that it's in the 1970s and 1980s that there was a curfew in Chile. The police would check abandoned buildings while everybody was, you know, locked up in their houses. And this movie here is based on an actual case of what happened with this specific house that we've been, you know, getting reports about. We then meet our police officer from the synopsis. His name is Aragada, and he's portrayed by Canas. He uses a payphone to call his significant other, and we know something happened between them. He tries to apologize, but she's still quite upset and, you know, is crying pretty hard. It ends with her hanging up and then him being agitated. Back in his car, the dispatcher reaches out to any officers that are in the area that he is in. Someone called in stating they saw someone in the yard of a building after curfew that was supposed to be abandoned. Now, Arigata responds that he will go to check it out. He arrives at the gate, but doesn't see anything at first. And I think this is kind of strategically done here is it's pretty dark out, and all we can really see is anything from his red strobing light from on top of his car. We then get to see a creepy woman, who I believe this is Carano, as she is staring at him from, like, the front of his car. She is wounded as she has blood on her, but then she disappears before he can see. We then hear screams coming from inside the gate. He reports it in and decides to go check it out. He hears it again and then decides to go inside. He requests backup as some spooky things start to happen, but it won't be there for close to an hour. He's told to go back to his car, but he can't really seem to get out. And then when he kind of calls in again, they tell him just to find somewhere safe and hide until they can arrive. Now, this becomes a traumatic night for him as he encounters other specters and even possibly a demon. But can he survive this ordeal? 
Now, my recap here is a little bit short, but to be honest, there isn't a lot to this story. I was actually questioning some things when I started to write my review of this, and even when I'm recording it, to make sure that I didn't miss anything. I was excited to see it as a low time of 75 minutes, so I think that's kind of what my problem here is as well, though. The downside is that it flies by without really giving you any substance. Now, hindsight being what it is, if this movie is inspired by real events, maybe there aren't a lot of things that can be relayed to include, especially with how things play out in the end. But I don't want you to think that I hated this movie, because that's not the case. This movie does a lot of things that creep me out. It is effective with building the atmosphere along with the scares. We get a ghost that is hung, and that one is portrayed by Campos along with this ghost girl, a ghost man who is played by Carlos Cortez, and then a demon who is portrayed by Rodriguez. There are times when one of these ghosts will appear, Arigata might not see them, or it could just be, you know, us seeing them, and there's other times where he can, but regardless, they will disappear pretty soon after, and these are things that when they're done right, like this movie does here, it is unnerving to me. The demon tends to be part of more of the jump scares with some of the things they do, and we get some, like, strong musical cues that go with that. I think that the effects that we get, including the blood on these ghosts, looks good. There could be a bit of CGI with the demon from what I remember as well, but if it is, it's pretty well done where I didn't really have any issues there. Now where I want to take this next would be the cinematography. This movie is shot with a handheld camera, and the quality is, you know, fine. I don't have any issues there as it looks good, but the camera can be quite shaky. It almost feels like we're getting a found footage movie at times, but it isn't found footage. There is a more personal feel to the movie with doing it this way. The camera will be in the back seat for the most part, like when we're in the car, and then we're seeing Arigata and his reactions to things. And there's other times where it'll just be kind of trained on his face. It'll move away from him to show us something and then go back to get his reaction. It also looks at sometimes where, as I was saying, you'll see something spooky, look away and come back, and then there's nothing there. This is used pretty strategic at times, so I will give credit to that as it does work on me. Not every time, but there are a handful of times that I could recall. Now, going to the acting next, we really only get Kanas' performance, and I think he does well in this role. It is interesting that we hear him over the phone in this first scene. From there, he responds to that call, and it's hinted that there could be a scandal over the radio with Dispatch, as him and his ex might have had some issues. I think the movie would better suit it to develop this or to give us more of the story for inside of this house, like maybe have what happened in there kind of be playing out and he's just kind of stuck in it. It is one of my problems that there's no meat on the bones to this story. His acting along with the voices of the dispatch, his ex, and those that are playing the entities I think are fine, but nobody really kind of blows me away there either. Now, this movie doesn't seem to really have any trivia online, so... That's all I really am going to go into for this movie. It is shorter, but I think that I've explained and went into everything that I can. I think this movie does a great job with establishing the concept and building the spooky atmosphere. What it is lacking, though, is actually fleshing out more of the story. The movie runs 75 minutes, and I found myself losing interest, as there wasn't enough for me to kind of really sink into there. The acting is solid. The effects we get, for the most part, are fine, and the cinematography works. Another aspect that I enjoyed was the soundtrack that does help build that feel the movie is going for. So overall though, this is just above average. I think if they would have did a bit more, we could have had something here that could have, you know, been a lot creepier and a lot scarier. But I think for what they do, they do build the atmosphere that they're going for in my opinion. So my rating here for La Casa is going to be a 6 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section because I've kind of already delved into here that there's not really a whole lot that I can kind of... You know get into there with it so what i'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review 
Olha só esse pé direito, que maravilha, Helena. Isso aqui é um achado. Como é que fazem isso com você? O sujeito trabalha lá 10 anos, depois é cuspido, que nem, que nem um sei lá. Que botaram o Flavinho no meu lugar. <risos> o Flavinho. E ele é maior de idade. <risos> o lugar tá mobiliado com tudo, Otávio. Prateleira, freezer. Eu acho meio loucura a gente se comprometer com uma coisa dessa agora, Helena. Não vou fazer isso dar certo. Deixa eu tentar. And for my second featured review here on this episode is going to be Hard Labor from 2011. This goes by the original title of Tridalahar Kansa. This is co-written and co-directed between Marco Dutra and Juliano Rojas. This stars Helena Elborgia, Murat Descartes, Nawala Lima, along with Gilda Nomasia, Marina Flores, Lillian Blanc, Thiago Chiara, Hugo Villavicento, Eduardo Gomez, Antonio Yanzuzila, Clarissa Quista, Reta Casamios, Julio Machado, Lucila Machiavellia, and Beto Mantos. And if I did butcher any of those names, I do apologize. I didn't do all that well in Spanish or in Portuguese since it's is a drama horror mystery film that is from Brazil. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Young housewife Helena, who is portrayed by Elber Jagaria, is on the verge of fulfilling a dream, so she prepares to open her own business, a neighborhood grocery store. Things don't go as planned and as pressure mounts. Helena has to find a way of making things work. Now, this is a movie, I'll be honest, I had never heard of it. It popped up for me when I was looking through the Letterbox Top 100 Films with a woman director. This is interesting, though, as it's actually a woman who is a co-director and co-writer. It still counts, though, as I'm making this a featured review as part of Women's History Month for February. And then I also should point out here that we do have a strong main character that is a woman as well, so I think that kind of also helps to kind of fit this into what I'm trying to do here for Journey with a cinephile. Now, what I will also say is that before I get into the movie itself, I'm going to go over to do some featured notes here, which this duo appears to have worked quite a bit together of Dutra and Rojas. He has 15 directing credits. Of those, three features and two shorts are in genre. I've only ever seen this movie from him. Now, Rojas has 18 credits in directing. It appears that she's done a couple more shorts in genre solo while directing this movie, as well as Good Manners with Dutra. Now, he has 15 writing credits. It appears that the same three features he co-directed slash co-wrote along with one of the shorts. 
For Rojas, she has 12 writing credits. It appears the two of her shorts she helped to write, and then working with Dutra on this as well as Good Manners for writing in that. Now, our star of Elbergaria has acted in nine films. Two of them are horror, as she is paired up again with Dutra when she did When I Was Alive from 2014. As for Descartes, he has 22 acting credits. He has worked with this duo on all of his in horror, as that is three movies. He also was in When I Was Alive in Good Manners on top of this movie here. Then we have Lima. She only has three acting credits. All three are in horror. Aside from this, she was in Good Manners and Voque la Corta Siu Cablo Cum Macaja. I should point out that this is the only movie I've ever seen from any of them. Even though I did kind of say it earlier about Dutra, that is, you know, kind of across the board as well. Now we start this off with Helena being shown around a building. It doesn't look great and it's really a fixer-upper. She is considering it though. When she goes home, she gets the bad news that her husband of Atavio, who is portrayed by Descartes, has lost his job. She tells him that she can put this dream on hold and he wants to look over the paperwork first. So she ends up running the space. The two of them clean it up while they find is, you know, that I had a cockroach infestation at one point as there is a, you know, just a ton of them that they find the corpses. There is also an unsightly brick wall that is going to need to be covered up. Now to add another big change, they hire Paula, who was portrayed by Lima, to be the nanny in the house to help raise their daughter of Vanessa, portrayed by Flores. As the synopsis states, though, things don't go as planned. Octavio is going to interviews but hasn't had any luck in finding a new job. Helena hires a staff, but she is distrustful of them. One of her employees by the name of Ricardo, who is portrayed by Carrara, told a customer that their opening day they didn't have skim milk. When Helena looks at the invoice of receiving in items, there should still see, be some in you know the inventory. She confronts him about it, and he states that he will look again. There are other items in the inventory that just aren't matching up when they're stocking the shelves, and her thinking is that Ricardo is stealing. This causes her to do some other measures to try to confirm what she believes. Now, the tension just isn't at work, though. Paula does some things around the house that bothers Helena, and then with Octavio not being able to find work and being too proud to ask for help, the couple is struggling. It also doesn't help that this wall they put up to hide the brick wall at the store has an unsightly stain that keeps getting worse and worse, and there's also a bad smell. Running a business is hard work, but Helena is pushed to the limits, and there are just some things that are not quite right about the building she is renting either. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, and where I want to start is that as this ended, I was questioning if this was horror or not. I'll get into what I think makes it that, but this is really a character study of this married couple with the stress that they're dealing with here. Now where I want to begin is with Helena. From what I gather, she comes from a bit of money. She has dreams of opening a pro grocery store. Now she has a picture of the place that she is looking to rent with the former proprietor in the picture. His place seems to have been somewhat successful back in the day, and I'm assuming that she thinks that she can make it work by putting in her own grocery store there. What I like is that we get a really true look at what it is to run a business. At every turn, Helena is having issues. She believes that Ricardo is stealing from her as the inventory just isn't matching up. She can't prove any of it though. She is also having issues with this pipe that is backing up and then leaking, you know, through the tiles. And there's that wall that she had put up on the brick wall that is also rotting. She rubs her employees the wrong way with things like wanting to be open on a holiday when every other store is closed. We see that it doesn't really work out as well as she would like, you know, monetarily. And her employees are turning against her in a way. And I mean, part of this is how she's treating them and just, you know, things of that nature and, you know, just the lack of trust, I think, is actually a big thing here with her employees. 
Now, to continue delving a little bit more with her character, there are problems at home as well. She butts head with her husband. There is a bit of him being emasculated by her being the primary income with this grocery store. I'll get into him a little bit more, but she gets annoyed with him is what I'll say here. She also convinces Paula to work for her despite it being under the table and having no benefits. Because Paula really wants something that's a little bit more official. But she does have some life important events with Vanessa and it really kind of rubs Helena the wrong way. I feel like this is showing how time consuming running a business can be and the strain that it is putting on her home life because of it. Now as I was alluding to, I really want to take this over to Octavio. He loses his job to a younger man. And there are multiple times in the movie that it brings up with his age that finding a job is more difficult. We see him going to interviews against younger men and even learn later in the movie that jobs are just hard to come by, I guess, in Brazil. For every opening, there are 100 applicants. He does find a commission-only job and gets to work from home, but we see that his heart isn't in it. So he's sleeping till like noon and just kind of being very lazy about it, not really trying all that hard. He's lost in what he's doing, and he's a bit prideful when it comes asking for help on top of all of that. And the last thing I want to delve into here would be the character of Paula, as she doesn't necessarily need this job. She wants it, something that's a bit more official, as I said, and she sees the need that Helena you know, has for, to fill it, but she does get treated horrible by Helena's mother from the moment that they meet. Helena isn't that much nice to her either, though. And I mean, some of this, though, is like they put up a Christmas tree and Helena is at work while it happens. So she's kind of bummed about that. And it's really only Vanessa and Octavio from this family that treat her fairly well. Now, Helena does have her moments. I will say that. Now, the other thing I kind of want to bring up here before moving away from the story is the horror aspects. I'll be honest, they're quite light. There is this kind of dog that just keeps barking at the store from outside at night. This makes Helena uncomfortable, and we also see that there's something that was chained up in the back of the store that left these deep and scary scratches on the wall. And there's also this like spiked collar that is found back there with a chain, and then they also find something hidden behind the brick wall that is monstrous. We really don't get enough of this though, and we don't really get much of an explanation though, unfortunately, either. So that's kind of something that kind of bums me out about this movie. Since I've really kind of broken on the characters, I'll go here next to the acting, Albergaria does an excellent job. This movie really does fit for, you know, being woman appreciation since she is the star here. She is strong and we see how hard she is working to make this place work and how that's wearing on her. I think her performance is really good for that. I also think her husband does a great job here of Descartes. He looks just defeated and we see that his plight is wearing on him as well. Lima does a, you know, solid job in her role with how things, you know, kind of seem to roll downhill as the stresses of other people's lives and they take it out on her. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Now, really, the last things to kind of go over here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. We don't get a lot of the former, but it is not that type of movie. Everything that we do get, though, there is done practically, and I think that helps to make it much creepier. They don't emphasize on things too much, like when they find a claw or, like, a tooth. I'm not really sure which it is, but it is quite large. Then there's the, you know, thing that we find in the back room, and then what is behind the wall. It made it feel more real because they, they kind of just gloss over it in a way where it's kind of nonchalant, but it's also quite creepy with what they end up doing with everything. The cinematography is also really well done in how the movie was shot. I like the getting the monitors of the grocery store. I found myself staring at them to see if I could see anything going on off screen technically, but we're, you know, we're seeing what was going on on those like screens. And it also knows how to focus to make things more uncomfortable. The last thing here would be the soundtrack, which fit for what was needed. So in conclusion, I think this is a good movie. I think that 
I could see people thinking that nothing really happens here, but we are getting a look at this marriage between two people who are, you know, flipping gender roles and the stresses of their choices. They're also the underlining story here of their maid who doesn't get treated the best. The story is simple, but it's really how these characters handle it. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but we really don't necessarily need them. It is shot well and the soundtrack fits. I would rate this as a good movie. If they would have, you know, leaned more in the explaining the horror elements or given me more of them, I think I could have, you know, gone higher into, you know, being a great movie or potentially even a masterpiece with how well they kind of construct some of this stuff. Since they don't, it does lack for me to really go any higher. And then right before I give you my rating here, I just have three pieces of trivia that I want to share. The title is inspired by an Italian poet, Cesare Pavazzi of La Vacora Stanca. The script was one of the finalists for the Sundance NHK Award. Additional awards include Best Screenplay at the Havana Film Festival in New York and the 2 Plus 1 Festival in Moscow. Bravo Award as the Best Film of the Year. Primo Governado do Estado Award as the Best Film of the Year and the Best Sound at the Conservatoire Film Festival. So that's all I really had to say here for Hard Labor. I'm not really going to go into a spoiler section. I don't really feel like I need it because I kind of delved into everything I really needed to. So my rating for this movie is an 8 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Me 
I want to welcome you back here this one last time as I close everything out here. If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want anything read on the show in there, just let me know. Or if you just kind of want to give me any feedback or, you know, just kind of chat about anything that you heard about here or any of the past episodes, you can go ahead and send it there. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything that I've covered on this one or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And if you would like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And the last thing that I would ask if you could do is that if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you could also, whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and rate and review just so that way I can get out there to a larger audience as well as trying to figure out anything that I'm doing that you like and anything that I'm doing that you don't like just so I can always make this the best show possible. So then for episode number 66 is going to be my first episode of this February that is going to be uh, Black Appreciation. I think as of right now, I know for a fact I'm going to watch the Spike Lee directed remake of Ganja and Hess, which is the, the Sweet Blood of Jesus. As of right now, I'm not necessarily sure what the 2021 release is going to be. The one that I originally was looking at did get released in theaters, even though not around me in October. So I'm going to have to sit there and figure out one, especially I'm going to try to go for one that has a black actor in it or to see if I can actually find one from a black director. But I will do something along those lines to ensure that I'm sticking with this theme of black appreciation, though. And then also I'm going to do for Odyssey Through the Ones is going to be the Black Cat, since that's the one that I have seen before but haven't seen for quite a while. So I was going to make that one, you know, just be a mini review on there as well as also to keep up with that Odyssey that I'm doing there. I think that's all I really kind of wanted to get you caught up with before I ended out this show here. As always, I would always want to say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time. This is your tour guide here on Journey with a Cinephile of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 